Gracious God and Heavenly Father, may this message be acceptable in your sight. May through your word we pray that you work in our hearts, that you work in our minds, that you lift our souls unto Christ Jesus, giving him praise and glory and you praise and glory. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are um, in our series, Walking in the Light. We are part four, Walking in the Light, and we're in 1 John. If you have your Bibles, and by the way, we ultimately will have Bibles under the chairs, right? Uh, turn to 1 John chapter 4. Now, this is a wonderful letter that John has written to those who are his children, so to speak. As a father loves his children, so John loves his children, his flock, and he is shepherding them. He's encouraging them to grow deep in their faith, to practice walking in the light as any father would do. He also warns them about the dangers that might waylay them along the way, waylay their faith. So we see that John has been loving his children having them to walk in the light of Christ Jesus. And today, what does it mean to walk in the light of Christ Jesus? It means to walk in truth, not in error. To know the deep love that God has for us. And then to deeply love one another. Now, if you've been tracking with us throughout this series, you might think, well, didn't we cover that already? And indeed, we have covered those themes Pastor Shields last week really talked about not loving the world, but loving Christ Jesus, not being in the air of the world. We've certainly covered about truth versus error and the deep love that God has for us and for each other. But the style of John is one in which he keeps coming back to the themes and deepening the themes, which is good for us because in our Western mindset, we think, ah, heard that. Got that? Tell me something new. But John doesn't do that. He, his intent is not to tickle the ears, so to speak, to try to impart information in a new or novel way. That is not his intent at all. Really, John wants to affect the very heart, your heart, your mind, your soul, so that you not only know who Jesus is, but you practice walking in his light, you practice his teaching. And really, that's been our intent all the way along in this whole series, is to not only know Jesus Christ as the light of the world, but then to walk in his ways, to practice that. And then also, we will be a light unto others, especially who need that light of Christ Jesus. That's what we've been working on. So this morning, we're going to go a little bit deeper in some of these themes. And the first is to walk in truth, not in error. Uh, I'm going to read 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. You just have verse 1 on your screen. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. 
This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So John is writing to his beloved children that they need to be discerning. So let's talk about discernment for a little bit. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, I talked about something that I, I practiced when I was young. And I, I got okay, you know, decent at it. Do you remember what that was? Juggling! It was juggling. So I thought, you know what? I haven't juggled for a while. Why don't I buy some juggling balls? And of course, as any good consumer would do, I went online and I read the reviews. And there are some juggling balls that are really good, some that are just okay, and some that, you know, you just don't want to use. But you got to read all the reviews, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of that, right? So based on the reviews, I got some juggling balls, and I wanted to show them to you. There's one, two, three, and then this one came with something different. But I thought the reviews were good, so I got it. Now, you might have various reactions at this point. Some of you might be thinking, that's really foolish, you're going to hurt yourself. Other people might think, well, it's his life, he can do with it what he wants. Or some people might think, well, he read the reviews, it was a reputable company, wasn't it? And they wouldn't give something that would hurt somebody, would it? Or some of you might finally have it, I care for you so much, put the knife down. I am not going... What? I didn't hear. Or am I psychotic? Yes. No, no, I'm just going to put the knife down. Now, this is kind of a silly little example, right? And by the way, I'm not going to juggle with the knife. At some point, maybe later on, I will show you that, yes, I can actually juggle three balls. But... It's kind of silly in a way because you would think, well, who in their right mind would actually just go ahead and buy stuff like that simply by reading the reviews? Well, the thing is, as silly as that is, people are less discerning when it comes to spiritual matters. They often choose their faith their worship, uh, a, a place based on the reviews, so to speak. You know, what religion to join even. There's a guy named Tom Rayner. He's a leading expert in church renewal and growth. And so he's done a lot about why do people choose a particular place of worship. And I'm going to give you some of the uh, things that he gave. He said, the quality of sermons, now that doesn't mean what they actually covered, but did people like him? Uh, 83% said that's a top thing. Feeling welcomed by leaders, 79%. They said, if I'm welcomed, that's very important in choosing a church. The style of service, location, education for the kids, having friends or family in the congregation. Everybody's sitting over there. (laughs) Okay, sorry, I couldn't help but say that. Availability of volunteering for opportunities, the hospitality project. But, but you get that. He said, this is, these are the main reasons why people will choose 
a church. And by the way, I think these are important reasons. As a matter of fact, we try to do all of these, but is that the main thing? What's missing from this? What? What, 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 what do you actually believe? Yeah, is, is the gospel present? Is Christ present? What do you actually believe? See, people are picking faith, not only just, not only just a church, but even their faith, their religion, or a place of worship, if it reflects their feelings, if it reflects the world. And we become a really consumer-driven culture here in how people pick faith, religion, churches. Much of faith, religion, and churches have become consumer-driven. And often people will look for a church that matches the world's beliefs and not biblical beliefs. I heard in the past few months that people are more likely to leave a church than change their political affiliation. So their political affiliation is more important than whatever the church has. This is the culture in which we are in. And by the way, a lot of churches, especially bigger churches, but a lot of churches all around now kind of bury the lead of what they believe Sometimes you can't even find what a church believes in their literature or their website. You really have to dig down. Now, throughout the years, even before my first call, but before my first call, at my first call here, you know, there are people who look for churches. And by the way, I have no hidden meaning agenda here. I'm just saying this is an experience that we have in our culture. So people have come to me, Sometimes because they want to check out the church in which I pastor, but sometimes they just went, I don't even know how to pick a church. And so I put together a list. And by the way, if you have sermon notes, it's on the back side of the sermon notes. It's not the complete list, but it's there. And I've included just the eight top questions that any person should ask the pastor or the elders of that church. Now, you'll notice that the questions here are not the same thing that Tom Rayner put down. As a matter of fact, they are theological in nature because at the core of any church, it should be the theology of the church, what the church believes. Because if it's not that, it's a club. It's a social group. So here are the top eight questions that I think people should ask of any pastor or the elders in the church. Who is Jesus Christ? Is Jesus the only way of salvation? What's man's biggest problem? By the way, it's sin. Do you believe in a literal hell and eternal punishment? What is Scripture? Or another way, do you believe that the Bible is inerrant, inerrant, without error? What must man do to inherit eternal life? How do you explain the gospel message? How often do you talk about grace, sin, righteousness, and judgment? If any pastor fumbles on these questions, people should not go to that church. 
if people are offended, and by the way, one woman did report back to me, this is back in Minnesota, that the people she was asking questions got a little huffy because it wasn't just one or two questions. She, she had the whole list there, right? And they were like, well, look, if they get offended, that's a flag that you should not be in that church as well. These are fundamental questions any pastor or elder of the church should be able to answer. Now, again, if the core of the theology is set, then the rest is preference. Look, if you like a certain music style and and the core theology is there, great. Or the liturgy, high liturgy, low liturgy. I mean, that just means when I mean high liturgy, it could be vestments, it could be chanting, it, it could be all sorts of stuff. It could be low, very low liturgy, music, message, music. A lot of that's preference. Now, obviously, I have my own preferences in all of that. But is the core there? And you know what's been wonderful, truly wonderful, in the last year is that the people who have been joining Joy Church are the ones who want that who want Jesus Christ, who want the gospel, who want his word, who want to become more and more in love and followers of Jesus. And that has been a joy to see. So we are growing in a healthy, healthy manner. And you might know of people who have left a church, who have never even been to church. This could be, you know, and and they're like wondering, And I'm not even saying come to joy. Do you get that? This isn't about, oh, get everybody here. Now, obviously, I would like that. But this is about caring for other people and their souls so that they don't play with knives. Got it? Okay. So, John's is saying, hey, I care for you. I I love you, be aware, lest you be deceived or ensnared. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, or review on Google. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. The issue of false prophets has been from the beginning. Just go back to our reading from Jeremiah. Jesus had to deal with and and warned his disciples about false prophets and teachers. Read Matthew chapter 24 or read Revelation chapter 2 and 3. You'll find all sorts of things. Peter dealt with that. Paul dealt with that. Just read the first chapter of Galatians. He's dealing with false teachers all the time here. And John is dealing with it as well. In 1 John, remember, he's writing about a guy who is teaching that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. So just naturally, he says this, by this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So if they say that Jesus was just a spirit who came on earth, they're not of God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. 
This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. John's saying, look, this is no small matter here. This is a matter of life and death. Either that teacher, that preacher, is preaching accurately from the word of God and confessing Christ and him crucified and him risen and ascended to heaven. And if he's teaching something else, he is of the spirit of the Antichrist, which is Satan. And Pastor Shield covered that last week very well, that it's either one or the other. And Satan, though defeated, is still raging, unwilling to give up the battle. So it is a very clear, clear line. John is basically doing this. It's the line in the sand. Christ or Antichrist. Now, intellectually, we get this, right? Okay, we get the separation, we get the division, but, and it's a big, big but, when you start to put this into practice, people become very, very uneasy about it. So let me give you an example. Mormons. Christ or Antichrist? This is uneasy because we all ultimately and immediately want to go, well, they're nice people. And they are, right? Most Mormons are really nice people. I'm sure there's jerks too, but you know, overall, Mormons are nice. But I didn't ask that question, did I? Do they confess the same Christ that we do? Do they confess the same God that we do? And the answer is no, they do not. Their God, God the Father, was once a man. So he was a created being, not eternal. And now he somehow became exalted to be a God and lives with his wife near a planet named Kolob, K-O-L-O-B. Jesus was never eternal with the Father. He was a created being and the spirit brother of Satan. Now, on the back table, I've put some resources out there. One, it's called the Ambassador's Guide to Mormonism. And, and by the way, it just says, here's what Mormons believe. And here's how you then can be the light of Christ to them. See, I'm not saying this with malice, but I am trying to make sure we are dividing correctly between truth and error. So it's out there, and if you are at home and want a copy of this, email, and I will send a PDF. So that's one. How about Jehovah's Witnesses, Christ or Antichrist? Antichrist. Remember, I didn't ask, are they nice people? Most Jehovah's Witnesses are really very nice people. But what do they actually believe? They do not believe that Jesus is God. They believe that he is Michael the Archangel. They also believe that Jesus did return. His second coming happened, uh, I want to say like 1915, something like that. That he returned in spirit, so nobody actually saw him. But he returned in spirit. And by the way, I'm sorry to tell you, but heaven's already full with 144,000 saints. It's full. But you get to be on the new earth, so that's okay. So, Christ or Antichrist? Again, 
you have to find out more. Now, I've ordered material uh, about Jehovah's Witnesses. It'll be here next week in case you're interested. How about an easy one? Islam. Christ or Antichrist? Antichrist. Jesus certainly is not the Son of God. That's blasphemy in their view. He was a prophet, but not a greater prophet than Muhammad. Muhammad is definitely a much, much higher prophet than Jesus. And he didn't die. He certainly wasn't resurrected. And a lot of them refute that he even died on the cross. Okay, let's do one more. Progressive Christianity. I know, that's a big, broad bucket, isn't it? If you do your research, progressive Christianity is no more than humanism. Jesus is simply one of the ways uh, of salvation. And salvation's even kind of a squishy thing because probably everybody's going to be saved. And so it's all about good deeds. There you're going to find social justice. And you find people praying with Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, Baha'i, Hindu, all sorts of faiths, because you just pray to whatever God you're praying to. Now, there are two churches in town that are in the progressive camp. One is the Methodist Church, and the other is the ELCA Church. Now, I am not saying this with malice. Hopefully, you can see I have no malice. These are just facts that I'm giving out. But you have to be able to have a dividing line, truth or error. Some people don't like a message like this. And I understand that because it sounds so divisive, right? Again, I didn't say be mean to these people. I didn't say go to war with them. No, as a matter of fact, these are lost souls that need the gospel message desperately. And so we should be the light of Christ Jesus to them. You know, one pastor said, it's better to be divided by the truth than united in a lie. And I think that's a good lesson. You see, to be a follower of Jesus is to walk in his light. His light is the light of truth and life. All other paths are darkness and death. And you need to be discerning because you might have some friends and family that are playing with knives. But these are spiritual knives with eternal consequences. How do you know then what is truth and error? It's God's word. John said, we are from God. We know who, we, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That is also why I made more copies. Don't know where I put them right now. More copies of the 21-day challenge, which is the Gospel of John. It's also on the table there. And again, if you're at home and you want a copy, email me, I'll send it to you. Read the Word. The more you're in the Word, the more you kind of go, I don't care what the reviews were. That's dangerous. Okay, that's the first part, truth from error. And now the second is to know the deep love God has for us. Verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
If you have been born again, and I'm talking a spiritual birth, just as Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, which, by the way, the section we read from John chapter 3, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. Jesus was saying you must be born again to even know God, to know the love of God. So when you are born again, when you have that spiritual birth, you know that God is love, and God loves you, and you are then to love one another. And if you don't love one another, do you even know God? This is what John's writing. Now, it's not too hard to understand this, but again, our day and age has made this confusing. Because there's one particular phrase that people really focus on. God is love. Is that true? God is love? Yes, Scripture says it is true. But people unintentionally, especially in our culture, have inserted a word in there that is not there. Not God is only love. We don't ever want to say God is only love. This is what the culture has done. God is love. God is only love. Is God only love? What are some other characteristics, attributes of God? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm not going to be able to hear well enough. So, but he's all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, mercy, grace, righteousness. I mean, the list can go on and on. He is light. He is spirit. He is truth. He is all of those things, right? To say that God is only love is in error, and it leads you down a wrong path because this is what people will do. They'll make it into an equation. They will say God equals love, thus love equals God. But you must never make that into an equation because that will also lead you into wrong thinking. So when you say that love equals God, you're actually making the idea of love as equal to or even greater than many cases than God himself. You know, on a, on a very sad note, I, um, I met a man once who defined love as no suffering. But because he did suffer, there was no such thing as love or God. This is what happens. It's actually been accurately said, and I'd like you to get this today. Love does not define God. Rather, God defines love. God defines love. Every action, everything that God expresses is what God is. So if you know the mercy of God, you know his love. If you know the grace of God, you know his love. 
If you know of his comfort, you know of his love. If you know of his righteous anger, you know of his love. If you know of his discipline, you know of his love. And if you know his holiness, you know his love. God defines what love is. And so when we know who God is and we see him and who he is and that he defines love, we stand in awe for a moment and we also wonder, does God love me? Am I lovable? I mean, that's a question that drives a lot of people, right? As a child, didn't you want to know and be reassured that your mother or father loved you? You wanted to know that desperately. And children who did not know that, their identities were warped almost beyond recognition. In the same way, you and I want to know, does God love me? Am I lovable? And as much as we want to admit it or not, our identities are wrapped up in that one question. Am I loved? Does God love me? The problem is when people search for the answer, they don't search outward, they search inward. They take a look at, well, here's what I think love is, and therefore I think God must be like that. And they make a God of their own image. And that's how they have their identity. But there's a pastor, Pastor Jordan Cooper. He wrote in his book, Baptized into Christ, our identity is not to be found in ourselves. It is to be found in something, someone rather, outside of ourselves. Your identity is not to be found in your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse. It is not to be found in your particular quirks, interest, or career. Your identity is to be found in the one who redeemed you, the one who gave up his life for your sin, the one who places his very name on you. When you are baptized, your identity is found in Christ. In Christ alone, right? In Christ alone, our hope is found. In Christ alone, the love of God is made manifest. In Christ, we see the full expression of God's love made manifest. John writes this. He says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the love of God. His love is an action expressed. And every parent knows this, that love is more than a feeling. Does it encompass a feeling? You bet. Is it more than a feeling? You bet. Because at 3 a.m., for the fifth night in a row, when you're holding that colicky baby, you know, That's an act of love. (laughs) Not that I've ever done something like that. I remember talking to our our daughter when she was just a couple weeks old. 11 o'clock at night, Heidi was sleeping. 
she was crying. I took her into the bathroom. I said, you need to be quiet. But you know that that's love. Because it's an action and it's expressed. The love of a spouse taking them to the ER or a neighbor taking them to the hospital when they need that or giving them food when they're homebound. This is all love because love is not just a feeling, it is an action and it is the same thing with God. How did he express his love for us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's so much love packed into that one verse. It's really astounding. What makes it astounding and what's clarified in 1 John is that God didn't love us and send his son because we were so good. As a matter of fact, God sent us because we weren't good. Because we were sinners in rebellion against him. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us on the cross. On the cross, God's love for you. God's love for you was made manifest. And we can barely fathom that. It says this, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That's a big word, right? Propitiation. Here's what it means. The penalty of God's wrath is paid in full. Jesus, by dying on the cross, bore the wrath of God. What you and I should bear, he bore. This is the love of the Father who gave his only son, his precious son, his beloved son. And we're at the end of worship today. We're going to sing, How Great Thou Art. I want you to really have this seared in when it comes to this verse. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die. I scarcely can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Does God love you? Oh, yes. With the greatest love. And when you are born again and you know Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior and you know the love of God, it fills your heart, it fills your soul, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul. As you are singing about the love that God has for you. And when you are filled by that love, by the very gospel message, by the love of God through Christ Jesus, who suffered, died, and rose again, 
How could you not love others? In John, it says this. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Going on, verse 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has, uh, love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment that we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Look, I am not going to spend time on this because if you know the love of God for you in Christ Jesus and the gospel, it should fill over and you should love one another. If you are filled by the very love of the gospel, you will naturally head in the direction of loving your brothers and sisters. This week, right? This is about putting things into practice. So this week, read the gospel of John if you haven't. If you've read it, read it again. Then compare that to other religions and faiths and what other people are saying. If you need to be filled by the love of God, spend some time at the cross this week. If you want, you can come to the church and just kind of sit at the altar here. Sometimes there's a reverence. And then put your love for Christ into action by loving one another. And everyone says, Amen.